Hey friends, Ashton Gustafson here and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Today I am beyond excited. A book crossed my path not long ago uh, called Do Hard Things. And after reading this guy's work and kind of doing a deep dive into who he is and what he's been up to in the world for a while, uh, I have found that like he is a, a wealth of information, but really brings this beautiful wisdom uh, just to all of us about like, Grit, when we speak about grit, like how we get that, how we develop it. And so I don't want to steal away from this conversation, but we're going to get into this today about his book, Do Hard Things. And um, comes from a running background, been a running, uh, been a track coach at the University of Houston. And some of you guys maybe have crossed paths with other books that he's written and work that he's done. But with that being said, uh, I want to invite on the, on the show, Steve Magnus. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Ashton, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. You bet, man. So um, I'm jumping all over the place on trying to define you and what you're up to in the world. Uh, when when you start the conversation about who you are uh, and the work that you put into the world, like where do you begin? <laughs> That's uh, actually a difficult uh, question because <laughs> I, I don't know how to explain it. I mean, it used to be simple. I coach people to run faster around circles around a track. But, but now what I would say is I'm just all about exploring performance and helping people perform better in whatever that is. That could be in sport, that could be in life, could be in business. Is I just like talking to people and figuring out how to kind of optimize our performance, success, well-being, all those things, and explore all sorts of areas around that. So I'm just kind of the the serial dabbler and, yes. and trying to go deep in the areas that sound interesting. I love it, man. Well, that's I, I think when I studied your work, uh, and I told you this before we hit record here, like I became crazy curious about this insight, this data, this wisdom that you've brought to us across the lines, it, it leaves the world of running and it lays over uh, being a parent, being a coach, um, leading people, uh, all these different things. And so um, it's just amazing to see how you've taken that past experience and really how you've made it super broad uh, and approachable to all of us. Yeah, I appreciate that. And that's kind of the goal because to me, it comes back to performance is performance. And if we if we stay in our kind of little narrow field, what happens is we we miss the insights that maybe apply to other aspects of our life from, as you said, parenting or business or the military or sport or what have you. And I think really it's about those connections where the, the cool stuff happens is, hey, what lessons can we take from, you know, parenting and apply it to leading organization or the military and creating resilience and and individuals in the workplace. So there's so many things that cross boundaries. And I, I think it's kind of my job to hopefully, you know, bring all those things together and, and give some actionable insights. hundred percent. One of our mantras and statements here at Good, True and Beautiful is if it's true, it's true everywhere. Um, <laughs> and so if it's true on the track, something tells me it can lay over into our lives in different ways. Um, Let's talk about your journey first, because, you know, you kind of open the book and, and talk about that, um, kind of going back to that four minute mile moment and the lessons that were learned there. Um, just kind of introduce our listeners, kind of set the stage a bit for like, you know, how you got into coaching and the studying of, you know, running and performance and how we got here today. 
Yeah, so absolutely. So it was kind of, uh, I got here because of my own failures, I'll, I'll say, <laughs> is I was a really good kind of phenom runner in high school and college. And um, I'd run just just shy of breaking the four minute barrier in the mile several times. My best ended up 401. So just hmm. kind of a couple seconds short of, of that barrier. So I went up against it all the time. And there was this one race uh, in, during my college career where I was trying to break the four minute mile. I was on pace. I went through halfway. Everything's looking good. You know, I'm getting up to the last lap thinking like, I got this, like we're almost at the end. Like I just got to tough it out for a while. And then what happened is I had this weird experience where all of a sudden it just, I couldn't get any air in and not like I am having an asthma attack, but I literally, my, it felt like my throat just shut in, in what happened is after lots of doctor visits and tests and all this stuff is it ended up having, um, what, what researchers call vocal cord dysfunction, which is essentially the vocal cord shut when they should be open. Mm. So for whatever reason, the, the message from your brain to your vocal cords, which is normally automatic and works well for all of us, gets almost like haywired and backwards under a stressful event. So instead of opening during stress, it just shuts and you literally can't breathe for a moment. Well, so it was crazy. Cause I, in that moment, like I couldn't breathe. So I literally collapsed on the ground and it's, it, in what I had to learn there is instead of like, you know, in those moments where I'm stressed, I'm trying to perform all that stuff instead of like bearing down, gritting my teeth and like just pushing through that would cause my vocal cords to shut again. Hmm. So I had to learn how to do like the opposite. while everything in my brain was screaming at me <laughs> to like, you know, push through It's like, no, relax, like stay open, like don't do that stuff. And what it really did was taught me a different path towards performing and what it really set me down is this journey to understand both the physiology, but more so the psychology of, well, what, what does it mean to perform at our best? And as you might imagine, that started in the sporting world of track and other sports. But then it ventured out to, well, what does this mean to perform at our best and be resilient and tough and like handle difficult situations in other aspects of our lives? And, you know, that's really kind of become a, a big part of my life's journey since then. Right on. Yeah, your challenge uh, in the midst of being a runner, and this was like well into you running. This wasn't like, oh, yeah, I just kind of started running. Like you you found this well into being a successful runner. Um, and I think when I, when I read the book Do Hard Things, I'm leaving this book with this idea of enlarging one's capacity to absorb when things don't go our way right? And you, I think you just used the word like spacious, to be open, to, to allow, to use. There, there are beautiful tools that we can use uh, when the moment doesn't go right. Uh, and that is the true way that sustainably and maybe beautifully and joyfully we get to the performance that we actually want. Am I hearing that right? Yeah, man, you did a better job of summarizing things than, than I think I could. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to borrow that from you. But the, the the way I kind of look at it is, and you're spot on, this happened well into my running career um, in this instance, but like what most of us are taught how to get through challenging things in all aspects of the life is we're all given kind of a hammer mm-hmm. and we're said like, mm-hmm. hey, use this hammer to get through whatever. And that hammer is often like, put your head down, 
grit your teeth and just push through. And sometimes that works. You know, for me in my running career, a lot of time that worked early on until I ran into this problem. And what I'm trying to do in this book, Do Hard Things, is to say like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah, Hammer's great. But imagine if you could expand your toolkit and say like, I'm going to bring in, you know, a saw and a wrench and a screwdriver and all these other things so that when I encounter a difficult moment in my life, and that could be in your personal life, your work life, whatever have you, like if that hammer doesn't work, you've got other tools to use. You don't have to just put your head down. You can kind of zoom back out and use all these other different tools so that hopefully you can get on on the other side of whatever challenge it is you're facing. Yep, 100%. Um, well, so you begin the book by basically doing this. Hey, this is what you've been told or maybe sold toughness is, right? So it's the Bobby Knight, Indiana Hoosier way. Uh, it's the Junction Boys from Texas A&M, who, by the way, for anybody listening here, actually went one and nine. We may get to that uh, if, if we need to. Um, that, that, that toughness mythology, if you will. Um, and, and you almost define it as like fake toughness, right? Like what, what you've been told uh, really isn't as reliable as maybe we think it is. And you kind of talk through these like one, two, three, four things of like fake toughness. Can we just kind of chat through some of those? Because I think that would be good to kind of set the tone of where we're going in the rest of our conversation. Um, you cool with that? Absolutely. Let's do it. So basically, like you're, you begin with the first one on like toughness being control and power driven. Help me understand that. Yeah. So often what happens is we think of toughness and this is in sport, military, everywhere is we think it's like, oh, I'm in control. I'm the disciplinarian. I'm the I'm the person who like is going to tell you what to do. And if we do that, then we're going to create tough individuals. So it's the coach who like takes full control or in the parenting world. I think this example is very clear is it's the parent who is essentially it's my way, the highway I'm in control. You're the child. The power dynamics are, are clear. I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to just follow And not, and kind of not surprisingly to me, but surprisingly to others is if you look at that control and power driven model, is that it actually creates lower levels of motivation, lower levels of persistence, and lower levels of, of discipline, actually, in parents and, and kids and all those things. And the reason it does is pretty simple. If you think back to maybe your own childhood and your friends and stuff like that, is often those who had the most controlling parents, they became really good at figuring out how to avoid yeah. and get away with whatever it was and, and not get caught. Yep. And, and that's the skill set that it tells us to, because if the power dynamics are so skewed that we're just feel controlled, it's almost like our brain goes like, well, I'm trapped. So instead of just giving in to this, you know, feeling trapped, I'm going to wiggle around and try and find the, the best way to, you know, get around this situation instead of learn the skills to actually kind of be disciplined on my own or motivated on my own. Yep, 100%. Um, we're going to circle back to that in a bit on, the, on kind of a parenting riff because I think there's a lot of beautiful things to break down there. Uh, fake toughness, second, second aspect of this, number two, it's developed through fear. Talk, talk to me about it being developed through fear. Yeah, uh, this is, again, one of those that won't go away is we just think that 
the way to develop toughness is through peer, fear and often pu- punishment. Hmm. So what we do is we say, okay, I'm going to make, you know, a sporting example is, is perfect here is I'm going to make these athletes tough. So I'm going to put them through all this crazy exercise until they drop. Or in the workplace, what often happens is we say, oh, these new coming, um, you know, new coming uh, workers who are fresh out of college or whatever, I'm going to instill the fear of God in them so that they think that I'm I'm in charge and this is how you get better at this job. And what it does is, again, think about your own life. Do you perform best out of a place of fear? Mm-hmm. Do you for- perform best out of a place where like, oh my gosh, if I don't do this, like, it feels like my sense of self or identity or even life is on the line. No, you freeze up for most of us. Like very few of us are Michael Jordan, yep. right? And, and can kind of do that. Most of us, when we have like, it's either you, you know, you ace this test or you're kicked out of school. Most of us freak out and the stress response is through the, through the roof and we don't perform well. So it just, it ends up backfiring again. 100%. Um, and really, I think that's kind of what you got into on, the, on, on this fake toughness dialogue to begin the book, is it's like, yeah, on surface level, this may all look like you've got a lot of grit. You can grind it out. But on the inside, uh, it's a, it's a, there's a total storm. There's a lot of uh, non-alignment going on. Um, a lot of noise. We wouldn't use words like aligned, centered, grounded, joy. Um, you know, whatever is not those things is probably what's actually going on. Absolutely. I think that, that, that gets that in that gets that kind of the other two that I talked about there, which is like fake testness is often fueled by insecurity and then based on appearance over substance, which means like what we do is we often look at the external and we say, oh, look at those guys. Like they look tough, like they act confident, what have you. But often underneath that is just like the insecurity. Yeah. It's like that inner strength isn't there. The example I like to use here is like the 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 schoolyard bully. Yeah. Like from the outside, the bully looks really tough. Like they're in charge. They're telling what people to do. They're making everyone, you know, play the games they want. But we know from decades of psychology research that 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 quote unquote external toughness comes from insecurity. Like they don't feel like they belong or connected or have friends. So they're lashing out. So on the inside, they're just, they're, 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 you know, I hate using the word weak, but they're needing something else. They're not fulfilled. They don't, they're not coming from a place of joy or connection and it causes them to, you know, be again, be insecure. So what I'm, I'm saying here is like, Let's ditch that external stuff and focus on the real internal strength that, you know, it takes to take on difficult challenges. Because, you know, if you don't, the external stuff fades away quickly Mm -hmm. whenever actual stress or performance is on the line. 100%. Yeah, this is, uh, to speak metaphorically, Biff from Back to the Future 101. You know what I mean? Um, Like on the outside, there's a certain thing. On the inside, this is actually what's going on. Um, the, the line right out of the gate that really rattled my cage was this. Toughness is having the space to make the right choice under discomfort. Like that's, that's really how I, I think it's, it was, that's so well said. You set the tone for the entire book really in that sentence, do you not? Yeah, I really do. Because to me, it's, you know, I'm so glad you enjoyed that because to me, it really gets at the point is when we're talking about tough times or needing to be gritty or resilient or what have you, 
what we're really talking about is how do I make a thoughtful or wise decision in that moment, you know, to either persist or change directions or work my way through it. And it really comes down to creating the space so you can make that decision. Because too, too often what happens is when we feel stress, discomfort, anxiety, whatever it is, we kind of narrow in and we just choose the easiest path possible uh, because we're just like, this sucks. Like, get me out of this. Get me to the solution. So instead, it, it really is creating that space so that you can take that thoughtful action. And when you reframe toughness as a decision-making thing, yep. I think it, it, it brings in that tool kind of analogy where I say, okay, what tool do I need to use to get to the right decision or action? Yep, 100%. And as a coach, as a leader, as a parent, like I think this is one of the most, um, that sentence to me I think is going to be so useful that whatever it is that you want for these people that you've been entrusted, right? Maybe you've been told it's grit, you know, maybe it's toughness, uh, maybe it's um, endurance, whatever, like we can use a lot of words that kind of dance together. I think just being able to respond rather than react, giving them tools to where when the when when it's on the line and discomfort arrives, they can actually find that space to make the right choice. And so I, I think that like, and you talk about like this responding versus demanding, like in tough parenting. Um, let's jump into that because I thought that was just, that really spoke to me and rattled my cage. And I hope it makes me a lot more patient with my children uh, and I hope I become a spa- more spacious dad uh, through this understanding of like the difference between being a responsive parent and being a demanding parent. And then this 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 overflows into our businesses and everywhere else. Yeah. So this was one of my favorite things that I came across in, in the research, which is if you look at the parenting research, they're 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 always trying to figure out what makes a good parent. Like how do how do good parents parent? And what it kind of comes down to is decades of work has, has kind of validated that we can kind of plot parenting on, on two axes. And one is on the level of demandingness, which is like how high expectations, how demanding of you are of your ch- children, et cetera, et cetera. And another is on responsiveness, which is essentially like, how do you offer care and support? Are you responsive to their needs? And what happens is often in the U.S. at least, we look at that demanding side and we say, oh, okay, I've got to be extremely demanding and set high expectations and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And, and that's what we focus on. Well, when we have the demandingness without any responsiveness, it backfires. It's mm-hmm. like what we talked about earlier. Discipline goes down. It's worse, actually, in high-demanding parents for the reasons we talked about. You know, performance over the long haul. Even discipline when those kids go into military or sport where you think, oh, this will pay off. They'll get used to having high-demandingness. It backfires. So what the research clearly shows is we have to have that high level of responsiveness and care. And if you just step back and you think about it, well, of course it makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. if your kid knows that, you know, even when he screws up, like dad and mom are going to be there maybe uh, to like support him or her, help them figure out a way through this, et cetera. Then they're, it's, they're going to be almost like free to perform up to their capabilities or, or, or whatever have you. And I think the same kind of idea, as you mentioned here, translates over to the workplace or any sort of leadership because it's like, 
we often think of the leader as like, oh, I'm in power. I'm going to have high level demandingness. Well, if you don't accompany it with that responsiveness, like you don't get the you don't get the buy in, you don't get the support. You you create or people who are kind of performing out of or showing up to work out of fear mm-hmm. and good stuff just doesn't happen then. Yeah, 100 percent. No, so well said. And, and I think that, um, you know, a book called Do Hard Things, we, we want uh, courageous children. We want strong children. Uh, we want brave children. And uh, we've got to, again, toughness is having, maybe you could even say toughness, bravery, courage. It's having the space to make the right choice under discomfort. We're not getting out of this gig uh, without discomfort. It's coming our way. Matter of fact, when you and I hang up here, I'm sure our inbox is going to have some discomfort. The next text message is going to have discomfort. Traffic isn't going to, like, it just never ends. And really, that's what the rest of this book is about, is saying, okay, let's wake up. Let's have some awareness. Uh, and I love, like, some of this Eastern wisdom you kind of bring in here. Like, you can just know that all that's fair game today, if you, if you want to bring us some of that. Um, so I'm super stoked to just kind of dove into these four pillars of real toughness, if that's cool with you. Yeah, let's do it. So um, the first one is this, ditch the facade and embrace reality. Um, How do you tee it up when you're talking about this part of the book? Yeah, so I love using an example in the book I had from um, actually a good friend who's, uh, you know, now in the special forces in the military. And he put it like this, he's like, you know, when they're put out, in survival mode and like have to do these crazy hard things you often think it's the people often think it's the person who has like this external bravado and this person who's like acts really confident who um who can handle those challenges but he said you know steve it's the people who actually face reality who understand the difficulty that they're going to face and then understand what they're they can do and what they're capable of, who handle it better. The people who come in with this external facade, when real stress happens, they get smacked in the face. Mm. And that facade just dissipates. So to me, like this pillar is all about, you know, just like you talked about is like, accept that really difficult things are going to come at your way in life. It's just a, it's a consequence of living. And instead of, you know, kind of faking your way through it, like, accept what you're capable of, get really clear of that and then figure out, okay, what am I capable of? What can I do in these moments and align that really, instead of, you know, trying to put on this facade that everything's okay. You can handle whatever you, you want, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. There's a Victor Frankl quote. I quote it all the time and I quote it on here. I, I, I jumble it and get it wrong a lot, but it's something along the lines of like, in between the stimulus and the response, there is a space, and in that space lies our destiny. Something like that. Um, toughness is in the space, right? It's in that space between of when you have a choice to either fight, flight, or freeze, or engage. Go access the tools. And really, it's like fresh eyes. I think that's what you're opening up in, in this part of the chapter is like, we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. It's 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 the appropriate appraisal of what's currently at hand coupled with the appraisal of one's abilities. And now you can engage uh, whatever discomfort, trial, strife, headwinds have come your way. Exactly. And the way I like to explain it is the brain is predictive. That's right. 
So, so whatever it thinks it's encountering, you know, it's gonna say, okay, how do I survive this thing in our appraisal? Mm -hmm. Like gives our brains that predictive ability. So our biology shifts based on how we see things. So if, if we enter something and we see it as like a threat, what happens is our brain goes like, forget this, like let's escape, freeze, like just survive it. If we see it appropriately for, hey, this is going to be challenging, but here's what I'm capable of, here's what I can do, then often what happens is our brain sees it as a challenge. And that challenge response has, yes, we still feel stressed. Yes, we still feel some of that nervousness, but it's a more productive challenge response, one that has maybe a little bit more adrenaline that causes us to be excited and ready to take on the thing yep. versus cortisol, which often tells us to like run, flee, protect, et cetera. So like our appraisal literally affects our, our kind of biological response for how we handle, you know, the difficult things in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the example, it may not have been in this chapter or part of the book, was talking about the two different people going to skydive. That that there, there's a group of people that are going up in the plane, skydived a hundred times, and they've got uh, adrenaline. They're excited. You've got the guy that's never done this before and cortisol shooting through his veins. He's tripping out. Same experience, two different stories they're telling themselves. Exactly. And I think that, you know, I love that that example because it gets that, you know, a lot of it is the story that we kind of encounter, you know, if if you've never been skydiving before, I'm sure it feels like life or death that first time. So, mm -hmm. of course, your your brain and body are like, freak out, freak out, freak <laughs> out. But, but that that same thing applies to so many other things. And what yeah. I would also say is, like, yes, it applies to reality, but often what we do is we send our brain the wrong signals. We build the thing up. We ruminate on it. Mm -hmm. We worry about the big project or mm -hmm. responding to that email for days or hours or hours or on end so that, you know, all of a sudden our brain thinks, well, this must be life or death. Yeah. When in reality, it's like something simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just, uh, man, I lit this literally just, uh, I, this just hit me this part of the book, it, your argument is it isn't that we need to like throw our kids into the fire to make them tough. We need to prepare them, let them know the fire will be there and say, and when you're there, this is how you navigate it versus junction boys go ruin their lives for four weeks and make them miserable. What you're actually doing is almost like pre-living an uncomfortable moment and then when the uncomfortable moment comes, you've got the tools. Heck, I even think you said that like the military today employs like a ton of the new psychologists because they're preparing people for the psychology of discomfort versus seeing if we can go drown the Navy SEALs and see, <laughs> see who lives or not. Yeah, you know, you, you summarized it great there because it is. It's the military is, I, I believe last time I checked, it's the nation's largest employer of sports psychologists. Wow. And, and they do that for a reason because they're like, hey, you know, we're the military. We're going to go through some actual life or death situations. Yeah. So we don't want to just throw people in and be like, hey, survive. What happens is like, no, we got to prepare them, you know, simulate it, get them ready. And I think the same thing applies to the rest of us is that it's inevitable. We're going to face challenges in our life. And, you know, we can either be prepared with the tools to do it or we can, 
you know, get thrown into the water whenever that thing inevitably shows up. And we're much better off if we, again, teach our kids or whoever, the people in our workplace say, you know, that we're going to go through some stuff. Like this is how, how best to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Break this one down for me. Arrogance sits on insecurity. Confidence sits on experience. So, so this one is, is I, I love this because essentially what happens is the people who are often loudest, and there's some actual psychology research behind this, they're often the loudest because they're unsure. They're insecure. Because what happens is they're essentially trying to convince themselves. It's like the insecurity is driving them to project out into the world like, oh, I've got this, no problem. This is, you know, you guys are weak. Like, this isn't a big deal. The reason they do that is because they're literally trying to convince themselves that they have it. Now, think about that skydiver who's got the experience. Now, they don't need to project. They don't need to tell everyone that they've got it. They know that, hey, I'm going to go up in this plane. I'm going to jump out the plane and I know what to do. And I've done this a bunch. And sure, it might have a little bit of nerves in there, but I've done it so many times that I, I know how to handle this situation. They don't need to project. They don't need the bravado. So often, you know, I call this almost the, the internet troll phenomenon, <laughs> right? If you, if you go online, the people who have to troll or, or speak the loudest, like you look and you're like, oh, you're not actually an expert in this area. You're just like trying to project. Yeah. Like the people who are experts, like they don't have to defend everything they know because they're like, I know how this works. I know how what this is. And that's my kind of proclamation to others is stop trying to, you know, develop what I'd call the Instagram of confidence mm -hmm. and instead develop like the real true centered confidence, which is like, hey, I've been through it. I've got experience in this area and because I've got experience, like I know that when push comes to shove in this situation, like I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. Mm, well said. He, give, give me the, that idea again. He who is the loudest basically is trying to cover for something that's actually not there. Like he knows, he knows that he doesn't have it. He knows he doesn't have what it takes. He, he knows what he doesn't have it. And again, you know, I think so much of life, although we grow up, I think if we look back at elementary school, you can see all these things, right? It's the person who boasts the most and then like doesn't have it or the kid who brags so much in PE class. And then when it comes to get selected for dodgeball or whatever, tries to sit out. Mm -hmm. it's, it's when you have it, when you know what you're doing, you don't have to be loud. Yeah. Yeah, well said. Um, that's pillar one, ditch the facade, embrace reality. Pillar two, listen to your body. So this is the dialogue of the somatic interior wisdom um, that uh, if, if we're honest, the guy that, you know, the interview that I posted today, he, he um, we got into this like bodily knowing and that a lot of us haven't been told, haven't been shown, haven't been laid the groundwork of like how to pay attention to this highly sensitive, calibrated cocktail that we all are, right? Like, um, and you begin with this idea of that, like, your emotions are messengers, not dictators. Um, which, if you've ever read Eckhart Tolle, don't know if you have or not, Power of Now, that's just Tolle 101. Um, so, like, talk to me about this idea of your emotions are messengers, not dictators. 
Yeah, absolutely. So what we're trying to say there is that your internal, you know, emotions, feelings, all those things, that's that's your kind of communication system. That's your internal side saying, hey, something is a little bit different here, or hey, you might need to be aware of this. It's our it's our messaging system. And the reason I say it's not dictators is it's not demanding that, hey, you know, this is what I feel you should listen to it because sometimes those messengers are going to get it wrong. The example I like to, or I gave in the book, which I think illustrates this is there was this wonderful research study that took um, men and stuck them on top of like a very high bridge, a scary kind of bridge to walk across. And then at the end they had, the researchers had this like person who was this, this attractive female who would, was giving a survey and when the men walked across the bridge on a high, on this high bridge and talked to the women, like they asked them afterwards and all the men thought like they were attracted to this women and there, there was a connection and they tried to call her afterwards. Well, when they ran the same study on a bridge that was like five feet off the ground, no one thought that the girl was attracted to them. <laughs> and the reason was simple is because is they were mistaking the physiological arousal wow. from, from being on the high bridge for a, like actual arousal of attractiveness. Wow. And what that means and what the, the, the summary is this, is that our brain is always, or our body is always sending us signals, but most of us are like those guys. Like we just think signal and we don't know how to split it apart. Mm-hmm. But if you spend enough time, and I think this is where the Eastern wisdom really comes into play is, if you spend enough time inside, your body stops becoming like this foreign entity and you start understanding like, oh, you know, this is a feeling I should listen to. Or, you know what, this is a feeling that, you know what, I'm just going to let float on by. And, you know, the other example I'll give you that I think really made this clear is actually my wife is elementary school teacher. And um, she put it brilliantly when I was writing this chapter where she said, well, Steve, you know, do you know why that like little kids throw tantrums in, in, middle, in elementary school? And I'm like, I have no idea. It's, well, whenever something bad happens, like, you know, they don't get picked at kickball or someone steals their pencil, like they often throw a tantrum and you go over and you ask them what's wrong. And they say, I'm sad. And they'll say, I'm sad to every single thing that happened. <laughs> and then you, she's like, you quickly realize, oh, they're experiencing this like cacophony of like emotions, internal turmoil that they don't know what to deal with. And because they don't know what it is, they call it all sadness. Mm -hmm. But as adults, we might be able to distinguish and, and, and elucidate, well, is that like, you know, anger, frustration, loneliness, you know, jealousy. And that's what it means to understand your internal world is being able to slice and dice that apart because when you can slice and dice it apart, I can't do anything with sadness. Yep. But but if I feel lonely because someone rejected me, well, you know what? That gives me a, something I can do because I can say, I feel lonely. I better go to call a friend or interact with somebody or go at, have coffee with someone or what have you. You have an actual solution to the message that your body is trying to communicate to you. 100%. Getting the name right, naming it appropriately is huge. Or what happens is, again, our appraisal becomes wrong, and we start naming, categorizing, labeling 
the moment, the person, the discomfort, all not appropriately. And then we start accessing tools that aren't right for that situation. It's just a total mess. And so, yes, taking, taking that bodily wisdom um, and allowing it to be a messenger. And, and really, I, I, th- I think you're right on the Eastern wisdom side of this. Is like you, you, this becomes home, not so foreign. I think that's what you just said. It becomes home, and when you're at home there, you can allow it to actually be an appropriate guide. It, exactly. And maybe to drive this home for the listeners, you know, one of the most surprising studies I came across showed that they looked at this, like this bodily wisdom and, and stockbrokers, like investors. Hmm. And they looked at like how good they were essentially at, at slicing and dicing and naming their, their, their inner experience. And what they found is those who were better at kind of naming and understanding their inner experience, they actually were more successful in picking the right stocks and making more money. Well, and the reason is pretty simple is because we'll think about it when you're, 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 you know, investing. Yeah, sure. You use rational and intellectual things, but a lot of it is like intuitive where you're just like, oh, should I sell this? Should I buy this in this moment? And what the researchers found is the good stockbrokers, the st- good investors, they're able to understand which internal signal is real versus what one is maybe like anxiety and fear that they shouldn't listen to. And that makes them better over the long haul. Yeah, 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 yeah. And just you talked about the brain being this great predictive machine. Uh, I think the, the phrase I underlined, and I may be paraphrasing this, but that you put in this chapter was like, if you've got bad data you're going to make a bad prediction. Uh, and that's really what you're getting at, I think, in this, in this somatic listening to your body is this is a... Uh, and by the way, I think it should be appropriate to kind of invite our listeners to this. You don't get good at this day one. Like, this is not an overnight, oh, I'm now totally dialed in and I understand everything that's happening within me now. Like, there's a lot of rewiring. There are neuro pathways. There are stories that maybe you have told yourself for a long time that at the bodily level, we got to get this stuff kind of un- untied up, if you will. Yeah, I'm so glad you put that up because a lot of times, uh, you know, I tell people this and they're like, oh, great, I'll, I'll go try, you know, whatever they want to do, mindfulness or some sort of thing where I'm going to pay attention. And it takes time. Yeah. Like, but the good news is like, there's tons of research that shows we all can get better at it. It's just essentially spending enough time to, again, slicing and dicing apart that inner world or paying attention to it. And, you know, for your listeners, one thing that is super simple that helps is that naming thing. And there's this wonderful uh, tool that I was introduced to by um, a good friend who's a therapist who said, like, go check out this thing called the motion wheel which is essentially what it does is it takes the simple vocabulary that we often use, happy, sad, whatever, and it just gives you an array of other verbs and, and adjectives and all that stuff to, uh, to explain or label things so that you can get a little bit more clear on your labeling. So even something as simple as that will, will help you, know, you develop this ability. Totally. I've seen that wheel, and uh, a lot of us have been told or we have a story of that we're not allowed to feel, or we're not allowed to have an opinion or say that I think or feel this in a scenario, that wheel is very helpful because it can it can it gives you it gives you the toolkit right there to say, name that, right? And then once it has a name, 
then it can kind of take its claws out of you sometimes. It, exactly. I like to say when we name it, we can have a little bit more control over it. Yeah. So, you know, work on naming it and labeling it and, and getting comfortable with it. Yeah, it's not as camouflaged. It's not as elusive, mysterious. Once it's got a name, we can kind of say, all right, there's the outline of it. I get it now. I've got my thumb on it. Um, exactly. Yeah, beautiful. Pillar number two, listen to the body. Um, pillar number three, respond instead of react. And so, again, this kind of enters into that Eastern uh, consciousness uh, and I think you wrote here, when, when one keeps their mind steady, you have the capacity to flexibly modulate conditioned automatic reactions to an aversive event. So hold my hand on that. There's a lot of, that's a very academic sentence for a redneck from Central Texas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. Uh, so, so here's what it is, is when you can essentially stay, keep your mind steady, what it is, is you are in control and you get to choose or you get to um, like be essentially in the director's chair, hmm. telling hmm. yourself whether what you should focus on and what you should enter, what you should let go and what you shouldn't and all that good stuff. And the way I, I kind of look at it is this. I'll go to the military for this example is if you talk to anyone in the military Whenever chaos is going or on, like you're getting shot at, whatever, you're trying to do your job, what they teach you is to how to shift your focus of attention to the things that you really need to worry about. So, for example, a good friend who's a pilot in the military told me, like, you know, we practice flexibly fo shifting our attention in the moment. Finding out me, what actually matters. Finding out what matters. So in his case, it's like, if we're getting shot at, what are the couple of key dials or key focus points where he his attention needs to go in that moment, hmm. right? And I think that we can do that in the rest of our, our life as well as whenever we're going through something tough, often what happens is stress tends to narrow us. Hmm. And what happens is we, we start only seeing the threat or the danger in front of us, Right. And our world becomes so kind of narrow that we don't realize or can't zoom out and get perspective. And in those moments, how do you keep your mind steady? Well, when stress is narrowing you, you do whatever you can to get out and get perspective. Like, for example, there's so many things that feel like the end of the world that aren't, <laughs> right? And if you zoomed out or you talked to a friend, they'd be like, yo, Ashton, yo, Steve, like, what are you worrying about? Like, this is only, I don't know, this is only a quiz grade. Yeah. It's not like your final exam or like this project that you're doing for work. Like, it's just a minor thing. This isn't the major presentation. So like, I get it. It's, it's stressful, but you don't need to feel like it's life or death. Mm -hmm. the, the only way we kind of get that is if we shift our attention to the opposite of, of where we're kind of getting dragged along with that stress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's zooming out. It's expanding because once you're zoomed out, then you can reassess and see what actually you only need to be focusing on versus if it's really, really narrow, you're only going to be seeing this really narrow spot and you're not going to think you have options. You're not going to think you have tools. You're probably being driven by fear and scarcity. But expansion opens things up, enters you, you, you then enter the world of abundance, and now you've got some tools at hand 
And maybe you go left, maybe you go right, maybe you say this, maybe you don't say that. Like, options kind of save the day when, <laughs> when you know what hits the fan. It, it, exactly. You're spot on. And there's, again, there's fascinating science behind this where our vision literally gets narrowed, where if there are, are literally multiple paths that we could take, we're not aware of them. Well, in the research world, like they literally will, will show that like people will not be aware of like the path to the far right that is clearly there for the rest of us mm-hmm. because stress has locked them in on the thing ahead of us. And actually there's this is like one of the big dangers when you look at, um, for example, there's some wonderful work around extreme like mountain climbing, like climbing Mount Everest, for example. So in really stressful situations, what they found is people get narrowed, <laughs> narrowed on the on the thing ahead. So they'll get they'll get. He's stuck. totally OK. He's totally yeah. all right. He doesn't know he has options. I know he doesn't. He just hears the, the, that's my dog hearing the Amazon man, I think. So he thinks it's the end of the world. That's right. Um, But you know what it is, is so that, that Mount Everest example is that they found that during disasters at Mount Everest, what has happened is people get so locked in on maybe making it to the top or like, focusing on something very narrow that they don't realize that they could either turn around or there's a option for an escape this way. Or, you know, they have friends that are at a camp that are, you know, a hundred feet away that they could return to. And it's often like the simple decisions that could have saved people's lives that they don't take because their, their world and their view and their focus is so narrow that they don't see the other options. Wow. Is this the chapter where you were you kind of reflected on your own running experience where you were like, I started to learn if I was feeling something in my legs, that was telling me something. If my breathing was doing a certain thing, it may, it may have been the last chapter, but I, what I took from that was the experience you gain from learning about the cues in life, right? Where you can at some point kind of go, oh, I remember, okay, I remember history, History doesn't rhyme, but it repeats itself. When that's happening, that may mean this is going on. When I'm feeling sadness or I'm calling it loneliness or anger, maybe that's pointing towards that. Is this a similar respond instead of react dialogue? Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what it's all about. The example I like to give in the running world is, you know, um, the lesson that we all have to learn early on is like the difference between pain that means injury and pain that is just maybe fatigue of mm. some sort. Mm. So if my legs feel a certain way, I you know I know because I've been running for a long time. I'm, oh, this is just like fatigue. I'm tired. Maybe I'm a little bit sore from a workout or whatever. It's not a big deal. I can finish my my run. Yeah. But other times that that sensation of pain, maybe in the same area, mm. is signaling like, hey, like something's about to like tear <laughs> or break or like you got to stop now. But if we can't slice and dice that apart, then what happens is we either think everything is like end of the world. I'm going to get injured at the slightest hint. Or like what happens is we just ignore it and we say, oh, this is probably just, you know, fatigued and we end up injured or what have you. So it's the same idea here with this uh, respond instead of react is we want to respond to reality. And, And in order to do that, we have to know the cues that often give us that information so we can integrate it, make sense of it, 
and then get to the best decision based on the information that we have in front of us. hundred percent. I mean, I don't need to get into the exact example today, but you know, the proverbial tiger in the bushes was in my inbox, got an email that um, I think five, 10 years ago, I mean, my heart rate would have gone through the roof. And I, I read the email and I was like, wow, I am, I'm kind of pretty chill about this at the moment Be, <laughs> because we've got some options. I actually know we could do this now. We can do that. Here's how I'm going to relay that information to everyone that's involved in this email. Um, and uh, rather than forcing and, and letting fear drive and thinking everything's on the line, we're going to open up, become spacious find our options. And like you said, 20 years ago, we didn't think we were going to make it because of whatever was in our life. And here we are again, and there's another opportunity to do that. Um, the example I wanted you to share was your wife's example for six-year-old class. And when she asked one of her little students, and, and she does this often, can you reset? And I think that this is a great, I think this will be helpful for us as adults those of us that have been entrusted children, maybe those of us that have been trusted employees or anything, there is a, this is that Viktor Frankl again in between the stimulus and the response, but she provides options to her kids when they get a little bit excited. So talk to us about the reset question. Yeah, so this again, maybe I should just let my wife write the next book because <laughs> she gave some fantastic insight. But again, you know, I'll, I'll get the background is that, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in an elementary school class. So I remember discipline coming in a different w way. But what she said is like, I'm like, well, how do you deal with these kids who are throwing a tantrum or, or not paying attention or doing, you know, whatever misbehaving? And what, what she uses is she just asks a question or she uses this idea of a re reset, which is essentially she'll go up to the kid and say, can you reset? And what a reset is, is it's just this kind of momentary pause mm -hmm. that gives the child an opportunity to get back on task, yep. right? And correct it. So it gives them this opportunity before, you know, they get in trouble or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, I'm acknowledging you're off task, like get up back on, on task. And what she also does is if they don't kind of reset uh, immediately or what happens is she gives them op options, mm -hmm. She'll say, you know what? Okay, we got two options here. You know, you can either reset now or we can reset at recess, you know, where you can sit next to me and we'll practice this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And what you're doing there is, again, for a, a, a kid, but it also applies to adult, is you're giving them some power. And instead of taking the power away and saying, like, you're doing this, you're giving them that choice where they get to learn. And that choice is often empowering in the sense that it it makes them learn how to respond better yep, yep. and create that space instead of restricting them and saying like, oh, gosh, you know, I'm going to be in big trouble and I've got to escape this or the, you know, the classic, you know, the parent or the child who's in trouble with this parent, which is like, OK, how do I lie and avoid and get out of this situation? Yeah. Which is ingraining like reaction instead of responding. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And uh, versus, you know, the other thing that it's doing for her is taking away the the option of shaming, of guilting. Why did you do that? I can't believe you've done that. You always do that. Making those types of statements. Just this invitation of like, hey, can you reset? And it allows it it allows them to zoom, right? It allows yes. the, the the child to zoom. And in that moment, they then can step back 
and be given some options um, that aren't as fight, flight, or freeze, I would assume. It, you know? it, exactly. I mean, that's what it is, is. You're just creating perspective. And the thing that I, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up is like when you learn, when you put shame on them, all they learn is this is a negative experience. Like, how do I avoid feeling shame yeah. instead of how do I develop the tools to like, you know, navigate this difficult situation, which they're going to face a, a billion times in life. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. And really, I think that's so much of the wisdom in the book is whoever we've been entrusted in our lives Help, giving them some space, allowing them, teaching them the practice of Zoom to where they can cultivate joy in the midst of whatever discomfort is there on whatever craft they're doing, whether it's multiplication numbers, learning to play tennis or volleyball, running a business, running track. You, you've, we, leadership is creating space, right? And if joy can take place, you can remove shame and guilt, take the Bobby Knight out of it, uh, it, it seems like there's, there's some beautiful mystery there where just interesting things happen in that safe, secure space. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what it is, is, is it, it really is. I'm glad you kind of brought that out as you're, you're zooming out on the book, which is like, it really is leading is creating that space where good things can happen. And also what I would say is not only good things, but those are the moments where we can learn. Yeah. And it's all about learning to handle these things or moments in a, in a better way. 100%. Pillar three, respond instead of react. Last pillar, number four, transcend discomfort. Um, I, I feel like this is about drive. This is about purpose. What, what was your hope in kind of finishing out the book in this idea of transcending discomfort? Yeah, you know, we've kind of hinted around and tiptoed around this uh, this whole conversation but essentially what I'm, I'm trying to do is most of the book is kind of put through this individual of like how I handle difficult things or how I lead people. And what I'm trying to do is zoom people out at the end and say, you know what is it's about it's more than that. It's about your purpose. It's about the power of having some purpose that transcends just you that is bigger than yourself. It's about creating the right environment and if you can do those things, then that allows not only individuals, but teams, groups, others, everybody to, you know, be at their best and most resilient and, and toughest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you find purpose, um, that internal drive, it, it just follows. Like, it's not, it's not like you've got to artificially stoke that fire. He who knows where he's going, especially in a state of joy, is super hard to stop. <laughs> you know what I mean? He who has purpose and is excited and joyful about it and is willing to absorb discomfort as it comes. Oh yeah, there's that discomfort. I knew it was coming, right? We're not getting out of this. Interesting things can happen. Um, man, this has been awesome, by the way. Um, super, super, super grateful for your work. And again, I can't say enough, guys, about this book, Do Hard Things. Like, no matter, I don't care if you're 12 or 90. Like you need to, you need to read this book. There is something there for you. Um, anything else you want to share on that idea of transcending discomfort? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think you nailed it. I think the only thing I would add is like, as I said, that purpose is important. And also I think that, uh, that environment, which is like, if you create an environment where people feel like they can thrive, 
like good stuff is going to happen. Yep. So, so to me, it's like, how do we, how do we make sure people feel like they belong and are connected and like have, have a path forward to grow and have the support. And if you do that, as I said, people are automatically more motivated, tougher, resilient, whatever you want to call it. So in our workplaces, in our homes and our teams, like, you know, strive to create environments where people feel like they can grow and develop instead of that they're just kind of surviving. 100%. No, and meta- when you share all that, the metaphor that comes to mind is like, as a leader, as a dad, uh, I need to be crazy curious about the soil and the rain and the sun and not so much demanding what the seed is or is not. If the soil's right and the sun and the rain is right, that seed is going to do its thing without me ever having to touch it. I love, I love that metaphor. I think you're spot on with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of curiosity, I ask everyone this when they come on. What's currently keeping you curious? <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a tough question. You know, I, I'll, I'll give you the answer. Um, so right now I'm just kind of down this rabbit hole of looking at the role of maybe identity and our development and performance and all that stuff and kind of how we see ourselves. So Interesting. I, I don't have any answers on that stuff, but it's what I've been reading a lot about Love lately. It. Love it. If you ever do get answers, can you come back on here and chat about it with us? I, I want to hear, <laughs> you, hear you that got it. Um, you got it. I love it. I love it. Another question I always ask is like, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Oh man. Um, chill out. <laughs> which, which basically means like, you know, the, the context is I was very driven and pusher and all that stuff. And that's great. But like life is, is long and wonderful and goes through so many journeys and paths that you don't know, you know, you're going to go down or can't expect. So stop trying to control everything and just you know, put yourself in the best position and see where it takes you. Well said, well said. Steve Magnus, everybody, Do Hard Things is his book. He's got others too, but I will tell you, if you want to take the deep dive uh, right off the gate, please go get you a copy of this. Um, Steve, super grateful for your time and your generosity. I know that you're a busy guy these days and um, thankful for you coming on and sharing with our community. I'm sure that moms, dads, business owners, leaders, uh, we're all going to take some of your wisdom and, and hopefully put it to work. How can we send our followers to follow what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. So you can check me out on all social media, which is at, at, well at Steve Magnus on any social media and then check out my website, stevemagnus.com. I got a newsletter, all sorts of good stuff. So, and I really appreciate this conversation. I mean, it was, it was a blast to have you guys are doing some great stuff and I can really tell we're aligned on, on a lot of, a lot of things. Yeah, man, for sure. Well, three-hour hike from Houston to uh, Waco, from Waco to Houston, so may have to buy you lunch one day and dig into this a little bit more. Um, but uh, again, super grateful for what you're doing in the world, man. It's doing good things, and I think it'll lead us all towards lighter and brighter lives. So carry on, and uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a lot. All right, man. <laughs>